two things you need to know. Number one, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. And number two, get it in writing. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. One of the most important subjects we teach our students in the College of Business is the fundamentals of business law. Although we do not have a major in it, it is of critical importance if we want our graduates to be able to function within the lines of both decency and legality. And somewhere in the middle of all that is ethicality, tempered greatly by the fact that just because something is legal does not necessarily make it ethical. It's enough to cause someone to reach the point of despair as they consider torts, contracts, and all those things that lawyers talk about regularly, but we must teach it anyway. My guest today is Dr. Joanna Kimball, clinical assistant professor here in our College of Business. Joanna, your social media profile says you've been with us since 2015. That's starting to sound a little bit like a career now. <laughs> just uh, a little. Just a little. <laughs> where, where did you come from in terms of prior experience and academic training? And why did you choose academia as opposed to private practice? And for that matter, why WT? Well, my work background is a mix of retail, manufacturing, and service industries, so it's nice and broad. And I majored in economics as an undergraduate, Butler University in Indiana. And without realizing it, I began to be drawn into a career of auditing and law. That was just the projects that started to build my resume. And of course, as time goes on, the more you do something, the more your future jobs and career prospects tend to confirm that lane that you're, you're starting to drive in. I had a mentor at General Motors uh, when I said I was thinking I wanted to go back to school and get an MBA. She was the corporate attorney for the plant where I worked. And she said, I always wished that I'd gotten an MBA when I got my law degree if you're getting an MBA, I want you to get the law degree at the same time. And so she encouraged me to look at dual degree programs, and I'm, I'm still very glad that Janelle did that. She was an excellent mentor. And fr fresh out of law school, I did start working for a law firm. But I was um, pretty quickly regarded as kind of the geek or the dork of the law firm. I was frankly called that because... I didn't want to let go of looking at U.S. Supreme Court cases. Most of the time when you get into a law firm, you start to specialize. They even joke that three years after you graduate from law school, you probably couldn't pass a general bar exam anymore because you're so focused on your specialization. I still wanted to look at everything and how everything connected together. And I've learned since that that's characteristic of undergraduate business law professors. Mm -hmm. I really do have more in common with the other business law professors here at WT than I would with any of my law school classmates who are out practicing in the firm now. So academia makes sense. It's a good match for my personality. As far as why WT, well, an opportunity to start teaching here opened up pretty suddenly one year. And I just learned how much I like the culture here. And the students, the students here are amazing. 
I, I have friends who are staff or faculty to the, at other universities, and we chat, but I get to brag on WT students. There's something about the student population here, about the diversity of backgrounds from different states, the amount of agricultural background that we have blended in with other interests and businesses, where we get this high level of critical thinking and problem solving abilities in our students. And I like continuing to teach here because I like drawing that out in classroom discussions. Were you uh, practicing in Indianapolis or in that general area near Butler or was it in Texas or somewhere else? It was in Amarillo. Yes, I was with a small firm in Amarillo. Well, while I have never been to law school, I feel like I've had a pretty decent exposure to it uh, through, through the years. My old undergrad roommate and I decided to continue our roomie status while uh, we were in grad school at Indiana U. And, and while I was busy getting my MBA, he was in law school. And every night, I do my case studies, you know, my homework and all the prep and so forth. He was busy writing in legal pads, uh, doing <laughs> case briefs. And I thought, oh, my God, that is, like, so boring every <laughs> night of the week. It, it looks so grueling, but I understand the process. And, and that's how you become grounded. And once I mm -hmm. got into the Ph.D. program there, we did pretty much the same thing with journal articles. How did this process help you as a professional as well as an academic? Well, it helped me really learn how to research. And once I learned more about the technical process and became comfortable with that, that gave me freedom to enjoy the process. I suddenly felt like the entire panoply of law and legal history was open to me. And for me, that was, that was exciting. Even now, I love research. That's, that's one of the things I particularly enjoy about being here at WT is the opportunity and even, well, really the expectation that we do research within our field. I know from enough hallway chats and so forth that you, you live for the moment in law that whatever's <laughs> in the news becomes your topic du jour in the class. And I love that. I do the same thing. One of the topics that I know you are on top of and one I have taught my students recently as well is the 26 words that have shaped the internet <laughs> for the last 25 years or so. Mm. And, I, and I quote verbatim, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. That's a mouthful. Um, essentially, it's a liability shield for websites that allow others to post their content and reviews. It means that someone could post a negative review of a restaurant, for example, and the website owner would not be liable for any factual errors or misstatements. Technically, it's known as Section 230. What's this all about, though? It's been in the news lately, and, and I, I know it, it caught your attention. And uh, why is it important for the Supreme Court to begin consider, considering changes to all this? So as you said, it's commonly known as Section 230. In full, it is Section 230 of the, actually Section 230, subparagraph C of the Communications Decency Act, or the CDA. And that what became law in the U.S. in 1996. It's specifically at issue for the U.S. Supreme Court right now in two cases. 
Gonzalez v. Google, and Twitter v. Tamna. But the implications go far beyond those cases. Those cases are dealing with some very sad things that happened in Paris, France, some time ago. There were uh, terrorist attacks, and along with some Parisians, um, there were Americans killed. The families of the Americans killed are now suing these social media platforms, and their argument is you're liable because your algorithms promoted conversations between the terrorists as they were planning these attacks. Now, as you say, Section 230 does seem to provide this liability shield. I've been researching and doing some presentations on it for about five years now, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only one who's been talking about it long before these cases came before the court, because my concern and the concern of some others is that that law is being used as a liability shield in the way it was not originally intended. Think about the timeline. That law was passed in 1996. Social media platforms did not exist. They hadn't been invented. The platform style of business had not been invented. There's some debate currently among commentators about what Congress's intent was when they originally passed Section 230. Some say the idea of putting up a liability shield, back then it was for things like discussion boards and for new companies forming on the internet. Well, some people say the idea was we want to encourage innovation and the formation of new companies using this new thing, the internet. How do we encourage innovation? By protecting it from liability. Other commentators are saying, well, Congress's intent was to have the internet be the bastion of free speech. And so that's why even this old law that was passed before these companies came into existence, that's why the protection of that law should be extended even to these new companies. Personally, I, I don't agree with that last argument. I don't think Congress intended for liability protection to be extended to companies that clearly profit off of what others post. If you're making money off of what other people are posting, then shouldn't you be held liable for those posts as well? Why should you get all the benefit and not face any of the cost? Is the kind of argument I and some others are making. It, it's interesting how in such a short period of time, a law can go from being cutting edge and protecting uh, an emerging technology, and now it's just antiquated. You know, like and, and I really think this one is. Now, whether or not the Supreme Court will do anything about it I highly doubt that it will. Um, uh, what's been happening is there have been several bills before Congress in the last five years, close to two dozen, from people suggesting that that paragraph of the CDA needs to be revised. But none of those have become law. So we have the legislative branch is not moving on this issue. It's fairly natural when that happens that at some point it's going to transfer over to the judicial branch. But just because it moves over to that branch doesn't mean the judiciary thinks that it should be the one to make the change. The key thing, and this goes back to the formation of the U.S. Constitution and just the, the core philosophy in the United States, 
is that the legislative branch is still the branch of the people. It is the one branch where we vote for people directly. We don't vote directly for the president. We have the Electoral College. We don't vote for the U.S. Supreme Court. We vote through the Electoral College for the president who appoints to the U.S. Supreme Court with approval of the Senate. The true branch of the people is the legislature. And so that should be the branch, theoretically, that's going to enact changes so that law will reflect the changing culture. And I suspect, based on, um, I've been reading the transcripts of the oral arguments in the two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and based on the way those oral arguments have been going and the questions the justices have asked, I think they're going to punt this one back to the legislative branch. I think that they feel it is not their position to decide. Let's face it, many people rely on internet reviews to, to form their consumer decisions, like which hotel to patronize, which restaurant to visit, and whether those reviews are 100% true is almost irrelevant to those viewing it. Now, we take them at face value, mm. uh, but a business could be harmed in the process, especially if the information is not completely truthful. You know, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, is is Google really liable for some negative reviews at a at a motel that may or may not have had bed bugs? Uh, is TripAdvisor liable uh, for a bad review of a, of a restaurant where somebody had ordered eggs and they were runny and they went ballistic about it? I mean, people do these kinds of things. In fact, we kind of expect more negative than we do positive because, well, we want things to be positive and when things work out well, we're happy. But when things don't go well, then we want to complain. And so that's why we get on all these types of sites to vent our spleen. <laughs> and and for that matter, how could Google or TripAdvisor or Facebook or anybody else ever begin to police all that content? I mean, they're going to have to parse every word and look for certain keywords that are like negative superlatives. Well, when it comes to reviews, some of those platforms would argue that they already have a system for vetting reviewers to some extent. Because um, like with Amazon, you can see, it, first of all, is this someone who actually bought the product? That's question one. Then how many reviews does this person usually post? Other people can vote those reviews up or down based on the quality of, did this review help me? So I think the platforms will argue that there is some vetting going on there. But the concern with, with Section 230 is going beyond that into other issues. Um, for example, with criminal activity. Right now under Section 230, because there is this liability shield, it also makes it more difficult for investigators, for the police or the FBI, to get information from the social media companies. They have to jump through a lot of hoops, and a lot of times the companies can still say, no, we weren't the publishers. We we're under no legal obligation to turn that information over to you. So Section 230, it, it, it's about more than the reviews. It's coming into play in some, frankly, insidious ways. Now, you mentioned uh, the site owners profiting because they sell ads mm. and maybe data, right. probably data, <laughs> uh, definitely data. <laughs> um, but could you ever begin to say how much profit was earned off of just that one thing? Or is it just the fact that they earn profit? 
It would be challenging. Um, well, as far as selling data, we could probably track profit on that. As far as the algorithm the algorithm promoting particular topics and how much profit did that get in, that would be much harder to trace. Yes. Now, I, I'm reminded a lot of the music piracy years, the, the Napster era. Oh, I remember yeah. that vividly. That, yes. was, that was crazy when everybody had this uh, ability to make copies of music, you know, burn CDs and download and all this stuff. And the RIAA... Uh, you know, representing the whole industry, decided not so much to go after the platforms as uh, they wanted to go after the grandmas and the eight-year-old kids mm -hmm. for doing this stuff. You know, people who could not mount a legal defense and could just be made an example of. You know, they want it, it was a great scare tactic. Well, and and there you're getting into one of the fascinating law and economics issues that ties in even now to Section Two Thirty. If you want to stop certain negative things that are going on in society, does it make sense to go after the individual people attacking you on the internet? And financially, the answer is no. Somebody criticizing you or attacking you or bullying you on the internet could be doing it anonymously. So you would have to find an attorney who's willing to break the shield of anonymity, which is very difficult legally to do. But then once you do, is this person even worth suing? Do they have any finances? So from a legal and economic standpoint, the current system doesn't make sense. Suing individuals for defamation over the Internet is not working. That's another reason why some people are saying we should be able to sue the companies that host the defamation. Because economically, that's somebody that you could convince an attorney to go after. Well... Let's see, in 2007, after Napster had gone away and, and grandma and the grandkids were all silenced and, and handcuffed, I guess, if you will, hauled off to jail, um, Viacom sued Google because mm -hmm. people were posting videos with copyrighted music beds. And everybody loved to do that. You know, let's, let's make a video and put my favorite song as a music bed. Well, you can't do that. You don't own that song. And Well... Can you or can't you? <laughs> you can. You might be able to get away with a few seconds. And that's the thing. See, there you're getting into another thing that's frankly before the U.S. Supreme Court this session. The question of what is fair use. How much of something can you imitate if you're going to satirize it? Think SNL. Think, uh, think all the commentary channels on YouTube. How long of a movie clip can you play if you're commenting on it? How, how many seconds of a song can you play? Can you imitate an entire popular song but change it into Christian music and do a Christian version that your church puts out? What is fair use? And just watching how Google through YouTube has handled that question over the years has been fascinating. And to see the, the economics, how that's impacted people trying to build their careers on YouTube. Google's to the point now, sometimes if you're, you get a copyright strike against a video, they might take it down. Or the person who owns the original copyright might say, I want any advertising revenue that comes off of that video because it's using my material. But uh, uh, it all goes back to the legal definition of what is fair use. Well, 
we have a case before the court. It's the Andy Warhol Foundation of the Visual Arts versus Goldsmith. What happened was uh, decades ago, a photographer, her last name's Goldsmith, took a photo of the artist Prince. She licensed it to Variety Magazine so that they could use it as the base for artwork in an article they were doing at the time on Prince. Andy Warhol was the artist that they chose to do the artwork. That, that copyright was fulfilled, the article was published. What Goldsmith did not know was that Andy Warhol proceeded to do over a dozen paintings based on her photograph. And when Prince passed away, I believe it was in 2005, Variety decided to run one of those other pieces of artwork based off of Goldsmith's photo as the cover of a memorial edition. At which point the photographer said, I never gave you permission under my copyright to do that. So she's now been suing the Andy Warhol Foundation. The question becomes, was that fair use? And at the heart of that is the question, was Andy Warhol's work transformative? Did he do enough to change the photo that it became essentially a new artistic work, in which case using her work as inspiration, we'll say, was fair use. It, it, it's a fascinating case, and I can't help but think if Andy Warhol was still with us, he would be loving every minute of it. He was the artist who was always talking about, I want to see how far I can push copyright and fair use. This is the man who did a did paintings of Campbell's soup cans. It's just a painting of a chicken noodle soup can or tomato soup can and, and could make millions off of it. He decided that that was art and he managed to convince the market that he was right. He would be loving this case. But the outcome is going to affect what is fair use. A lot of artists are extremely worried. They were concerned already because there are apps out there using artificial intelligence that are imitating the styles of certain artists without compensating those artists in any way. At what point does all of your sweat, blood, and tears into a project get stolen away because somebody else decided to base their work on it and that's determined to be fair use? I've uh, had several people through the years send me written requests to use one of my photographs as inspiration for a painting. And I, you know, I just say, yes, that's fine. But more importantly, I thank them for asking. Yes. Uh, I think that's really good. But how far does copyright reach? I mean, does the casual social media user really have copyright over every word and image they post? Well, first question we have to ask is, is it their words and their, are those their images? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of known as a meme queen with my Facebook friends. I, I love a good meme and I will repost, but that's just it. I am reposting. I, I, I don't own those things and I know I don't. Um, the words, you would, you would think that that is copyright, but now we're back to the idea of economics say somebody did snatch one of my Facebook posts because they thought it was, you know, very pithy and clever and, and put it out on a coffee mug. 
I could maybe bring up some sort of a lawsuit, but could I find a lawyer to even represent me? The lawyer's going to say, is it financially worth my while? Well, how many coffee mugs did they sell? Two. They're not going to care. I probably couldn't get anyone to represent me. When we cannot translate available legal remedies into actual economic action, then the concept behind that legal remedy is in a way eroded. And that I think is going to be a growing issue with copyright and trademark issues online in the next few years. I've, I've had other experiences. Um, pretty much every photo that I put on social media, I put in a little watermark at the bottom, mm -hmm. copyright Nick Ehrlich. And Good. Um, that's just basically saying this is my photo. But I've had people take my photos and repost them, but they would just crop that part out. Yes. And I've, I've caught them a few times. And rather than, you know, sue them or anything, because I know I'm not going to get anything, I just send them uh, a seriously worded statement saying, in the future, if you wish to repost one of my photos, just ask. Mm -hmm. But don't just steal it. I mean, that, that seems like the, the really the only uh, remedy that I have. Um, well, and that's a smart thing to do, too, because if it ever became a bigger copyright issue where it actually was financially actionable, you've already started a paper trail. And that's something that lawyers love is, yeah, getting that sort of thing in writing. Start that paper trail. And show, too, I asked this person politely, but they persisted in this behavior. And, and sometimes things can be worked out. Um, I remember, uh, I, I still use this story when I'm talking about um, legal injunctions when I teach business law. And I was working for a company that uh, sold some novelties, including T-shirts. There was a T-shirt that was made to mimic the Subway Eat Fresh logo. You know, Subway Eat Fresh. And this one is at the height of the walking dead and zombie phenomena. So this imitation t-shirt said zombies eat flesh, but it was designed in the same colors and very similar style of letters to the original Subway logo. Well, Subway sued the t-shirt company for copyright and trademark infringement, which made sense. I mean, it was imitating not just their words, but the style, everything. What ended up happening was all the t-shirts had to be pulled until the legal issue was settled. But eventually, the settlement was the T-shirts were sold and Subway just got a cut of every T-shirt sale. They didn't, they didn't openly forbid it. And I think that that was actually very smart on Subway's part. Somebody, one of the executives must have said, you know, it's kind of free advertising for us in a way because people are going to go, oh, haha, that's like the Subway logo. Hey, you want to go get Subway for lunch? And who's going to say no to free advertising? So there are times that things can be worked out, but we still have to have that communication between the individuals or the companies about, am I okay with letting you use this? And what you're talking about actually ties in kind of closely to uh, a podcast episode I, I recently heard about the song My Sharona by The Knack, which came out in 1979. And um, it was just a short time after that that a young college student in California um, created a parody version. Mm. 
called My Bologna. That <laughs> was his first release. That was a fellow we all know now as Weird Al Yankovic. Yes. And uh, because it was a parody, I mean, but it was a legitimate song, he wound up having to pay royalties. And, and so the, the two guys who wrote My Sharona got lots of money. And they continued to make, well, tons of money through the years and and due to this day oh, probably still some residuals oh yes, yes. i mean the, the the podcast talked about mechanical royalties and synchronized royalties and you know all these <laughs> different things that i didn't know existed mm -hmm. but um one of the one of the authors has passed uh has been dead for 13 years now but the surviving guy he he said he makes between one and three hundred thousand dollars a year in royalties not bad for doing nothing. <laughs> yes, and and that's been the old system is if it clearly was you using somebody else's copyright then there was or trademark then there's some sort of reimbursement. But what about this Andy Warhol versus Goldsmith case? If the court says no, that's fair use, then in the future there may not be those kinds of royalty payments back to the original artist. We just we we don't know. And I I do not have a prediction on that case yet. I'm I don't have the best feel for how the this current court is working with intellectual property rights. So I'm I'm very curious. You you've told me in recent weeks that you are anxiously awaiting Supreme <laughs> Court rulings this summer as as much as say scores in a World Cup round of competitors, you know. Or I, the or the Olympics. Or the yes. Olympics, yeah. <clears throat> I mean I, I agree. It's a big deal and I can picture you sitting in front of your TV or computer just awaiting the outcomes. I will. What all do you think is going to happen this time around, and what do you think needs to happen most? Well, the cases we were talking about earlier that have to do with Section 230, as I said, I think the U.S. Supreme Court will punt those back to Congress um, on that issue. Some of the others, I... I'm just not sure. Whenever you have a change in Supreme Court justices, it takes about, I'd say, two to three terms, maybe more, to get a, a feel and a good ability to predict what the court is going to rule on different issues. This court is still too young to fully predict. That's one of the reasons I, I keep going through transcripts of oral arguments as soon as they're released, trying to get a feel. But there, there are about seven cases in total, three that you and I have already talked about here that I'm, I'm really curious about. Um, one I'm particularly concerned with has to do, uh, it's Tyler v. Hennepin County, Minnesota. Um, Geraldine Tyler, woman in her 90s who could not pay the property taxes on her condominium. The county took the condominium and auctioned it off to pay the property taxes. But they made about $25,000 more on the sale than what she owed in property taxes. And they kept that money. Now, under Minnesota law, that's perfectly legal. There are about a dozen states in the U.S. that have similar laws that say the government can take your home if, they owe, if you owe them money but if they make more money off the sale, they don't have to return the excess to you. That, to me, is a huge issue in property rights. I'd like to say that the court is going to rule in favor of Grandma Geraldine, but I just don't know. 
but that that's one of the ones I'm very anxious about. And we've discussed that in my business law class. And and back to the Section 230 issue, even though you think uh, the Supreme Court will punt on it, mm -hmm. uh, the defendants are basically saying, look, if you get rid of these 26 words, it's going to break the Internet. Yes, Google in particular has tried to make um, economic arguments, but it's it, it it almost depends on those arguments depends on people not knowing what's going on in the rest of the world, because these internet platforms and Google are much more scrutinized, and there are many more laws over them in other parts of the country. Google is fighting antitrust battles in other parts of the world that they just haven't had to deal with here in the United States. So for them to be arguing, yeah, it'll break the Internet and, and hurt the Internet economy, short run, maybe. Long run, no, it won't. Businesses will adapt. I even saw somebody, a commentator, trying to make the argument, well, think about Places like Etsy, what if suddenly they were held liable for the descriptions of products that artists posted on their website? That could destroy the economics of Etsy. No, no, it wouldn't. Etsy has a contract with everyone who lists items on that site. Etsy could just put an indemnification clause in that contract. So... Yeah, I, I've read the, the amicus briefs on that, and I've read Google's brief, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not buying their economic <laughs> argument. <laughs> After the break, we'll take a look at the most controversial thing to hit academia since copy and paste, and that, of course, <laughs> is AI. The economy always leading in the daily news. It's no secret that there is a shortage of professionals who understand what's going on in this world. Master of Science in Finance and Economics prepares the next generation of thought leaders who know how to prepare institutions and companies for the great unknown. Whether you seek employment in business, government, or as an instructor, the MSFE will ground you in all the theory and show you how to put it into practice. Demand meets supply at the corner of finance and economics. It's no mistake that our MSFE is consistently rated as one of the strongest in the nation. We're double ACSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MSFE in hand. Waivers are offered for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Unless a person has been living in a cave without internet the last five months, it's hard not knowing, or at least having heard about, ChatGPT, the text authoring tool from OpenAI. Essentially, ChatGPT is not just a chatbot like we see on web pages asking us if we have a question, but instead, a highly polished writing tool that takes orders and can write virtually anything on command. Many academics were quaking in their boots last winter at the prospect of students using this tool to write open-ended and essay responses on assignments, projects, exams. Uh, after all, it doesn't make grammatical errors. It, it uh, conjugates verbs perfectly, it, and it uses <laughs> fairly basic words. It's understandable, and it has a decent logical flow. Oh, and probably the best thing for students is that, at least for now, it's free. Um, 
Joanna, what are your th uh, initial thoughts about chat GPT and when did you first hear about it? I first heard about it over the holiday break. And my initial reaction was, cool, where is it and how can I play with it? Um, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by new shiny things, I admit. And yeah, I, I immediately started to hear the arguments about, oh, students can use this to plagiarize and to cheat. Students do that anyway. And if anything, one of the good outcomes here is I think it's had a lot of academics, including myself, reviewing some of our major writing assignments to see how can we ensure that the submissions are the responses from the actual students. We need to be on top of that anyway. But in, in terms of other things, oh, I've found so many uses for it. And I've, I've even just done stupid fun things with ChatGPT, but there are actual productivity things where it's really useful too. And I think the next step for all of us as academics is how do we communicate to our students ways that they could and should be using it? Because we, we, we can't just pretend it doesn't exist. And we shouldn't be standing there going, you should never touch it either. That's short-sighted. Artificial intelligence is going to be a growing part of the information systems that we all use. If we're going to really prepare our students, not just for the future, but just for, you know, next week, then we need to take the lead in teaching them how to use the new tools as they come. So I, I take it that you think that academics don't need to be scared of it, but be instead proactive. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, fear does us no good at all. It's, it's a reality. Accept it. Do what you can to cheat proof and plagiarize your assignments. But then start to talk to students about how to use it. Um, you know, when students are applying for jobs and they're working on cover letters, okay, write the draft of the cover letter. Now do more research. Find that company's mission statement. Look at that company's five most recent social media posts. Take your cover letter, the company's mission statement, and the social media posts, feed them all into the artificial intelligence, and ask the AI, how can I help improve this cover letter by including information from the mission statement and the social media post? And then see what the AI gives you. It do, does it give you a more informed draft? Particularly when you start with your own document and then feed it into the AI, it will still use your sentences. It will still use your phrasing and tone. It's just going to combine in the additional information. So do you do anything at all to try to preempt student use of it, you know, on exams and assignments? Or uh, what happens if you suspect something has been crafted by a machine? Um, what are you doing to detect? I mean, we've got now this thing called GPT-0. It's mm. the, the anti-AI, <laughs> basically. Um, have you used? I mean, I, I used that recently when I felt like the work submitted by one of my student groups was just a little suspicious. 
they use the word verily, and it's like I have not ever seen that word in a student response. It sounds like something straight out of the the King James translation of the yeah. Bible. You know, verily yes. I say unto you, dear professor, and yeah. and so I thought, oh, this this cannot be right, and I ran it through uh, zero or GPT zero, and it said it was written by a human. And I thought, okay, now which human? Who knows? Well, and that, that's the question, because even before we were dealing with chat GPT, there, there are online paper mills out there. And students will try to pay somebody else to write their papers for them. But the problem with those papers, and this will be the same problem with chat GPT, is they end up being off topic. The at least with my assignments, the only way you can correctly answer the short essay and the essay questions is if you've been in my class. And I craft the assignments to have that level of specificity. So somebody working in a paper mill or artificial intelligence, they, they've not been in my class, they're going to get off topic. And I set up my grading rubrics where if that's off topic, it's wrong. And you get zero points on that part of the question. So if students are trying to cheat, trying to use things for plagiarism, you can still set up your grading where they're still going to end up failing themselves on questions or even on the entire assignment. And, you know, let's face it, people have been cheating forever. Oh, heavens, I, th yes. That doesn't justify future cheating. But I, I recall when I was uh, teaching at Indiana U during my Ph.D. program, this would have been mid-80s. And um, I oversaw about 900 undergrad students in the principal's class. Mm -hmm. And we had a herd of uh, PhD students who ran the weekly uh, discussion sessions, which always met on late on Friday afternoons. How convenient. Uh, but <laughs> there, were, there was uh, always a, a lot of paperwork, a lot of paper assignments coming in. And this was early in the computer era, you know, people had work, the, the, the rich kids were having uh, easy access now to computers and printers and stuff. Everybody else had to uh, fight a little harder to get that. But we had 900 papers coming in every Friday that needed to be graded by the team of PhD students. And one female student decided to rat out her buddies. <laughs> I guess these these guys have been out probably, you know, might have been a little beer involved on, on a Thursday night or whatever. And they were bragging about how they had literally just taken the same computer file, like in Word or WordStar or whatever, and just made duplicate copies of it and put, each put their own name on it, thinking that, oh, there's no way in the world. Nobody will notice. Nobody will ever notice out of 900 <laughs> papers unless somebody rats them out. And she did. And basically, I called all the papers in. We had a big conference room table, and we laid them all out, and we found the perpetrators mm -hmm. and failed them. Mm -hmm. um, it was a little harder back in that day. I mean, today we would just use Turnitin. To, to find things. Well, and I know that our university and our IT department is working to update our plagiarism checkers so that it will automatically include checking for chat GPT. So, yeah, I back to, you know, the original question on this topic. No, I, I don't think as academics we need to fear it. But let's start talking about how it can work. I mean, I, 
I have one journal article I'm working on where I was I had a stack of research and I was struggling to get started. And so I asked ChatGPT, here's the subject, here are some of the sub, you know, the subtopics. Generate an outline for me. And so it generated an outline and I was able to look at that and go, I don't agree with your outline. Here's how I actually want to organize the paper. But oh good heavens, you actually identified two court cases I forgot when I was doing my research. So I basically took its not great outline and it was like somebody had done a bad first draft for me. I had something to argue against. And then I was able to come up with the outline for the actual paper I'm going to do. Use it for stuff like that. And I mean, for heaven's sakes, play with it too. I've I've programmed in lists of ingredients and asked it to come up with a recipe. And then I made the recipe and God bless a bunch of my friends were willing to eat it too. It was interesting because of the ingredients we picked, but it was actually pretty good. Um, the other night I, I asked it to write an alternate ending to Little Women, the classic novel, and include werewolves. Its initial response, it refused it said this is a classic work of literature, did not originally contain werewolves, and th th you shouldn't do this to classic. And I'm like, no, I insist. Write me an alternate ending with werewolves. And it finally did. <laughs> but this is how we discover where, what are the capabilities of artificial intelligence. We need to play with the thing. And we need to tell our students what are the ethical and responsible ways they should be playing with it. Uh, not too long ago, I was Skyping with my German co-authors in Germany, and these are uh, folks I've done a couple of Route 66 books with, and we were talking about ChatGPT, and I said, uh, Udo, I wonder if it can write in German. And mm -hmm. he said, oh, well, let's find out. So while we were in the middle of a Skype, I pulled up ChatGPT, and I said, write a short essay about Route 66 in German. And within about 30 seconds, we had a full-page essay, which I then uh, let my friends read, and they came back to me and said, wow, this is perfect German grammar. I've actually been experimenting with it the last week or so because WT is a Hispanic-serving institution. I've asked it to take some of my case examples and translate them into Spanish. And then I've had some friends who are fluent look at them to see, you know, how these work. I, I, yeah, let's let's use it for some stuff like that. Yeah, so I guess we can use a potentially evil thing for good, right? It it's inanimate. It's I know some people might disagree, especially some of the other AIs that are out there, but arguably it is not sentient. So it's neither good nor evil. It's just how you use it. Exactly. What do you think the upper limit might be for machine created content? Now, it's kind of kind of scary to ponder what a machine can do. I mean, a year ago, we wouldn't have been having this conversation, and here we are now, and we're thinking about what comes after chat GPT. What do you think? From a legal point of view, and this may alarm some people, but from a legal standpoint, I don't see a limit. I, I don't see an upward bound. There could very well be a point where we have machine-generated art, machine-generated literature that is difficult to distinguish from something made by human beings, at which point the argument within the artistic communities will naturally be, well, does this have artistic merit? 
if it's not made by a person. And the legal response to that, based on, you know, U.S. Supreme Court precedent, legally, we do not, when it, when something goes into court on copyright, trademark, and all that, the court's rule is that we don't look at it to determine if there is artistic merit. We will not discuss that. And so if the last argument somebody has about whether or not a creation should be allowed to exist is whether or not it has artistic merit, that argument will lose in court. And so because of that, at least legally, I do not see an upward bound on AI. What's a professor to do in their spare time? (laughs) (laughs) We actually have some, believe it or not. And when we come back, we'll look at Joanna's fun pursuits outside of the classroom. In spite of what some people might think, we professors really do have lives. Some of us do anyway. Well. (laughs) Yeah, and hers involves acting up a little bit. (laughs) The demand for professionals in data analytics and information systems far exceeds the supply, which is why the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business developed the Masters of Science in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics degree program. Already, external reviewers have ranked it among the highest IS programs in the nation. We are an AACSB-accredited college and among the most elite business schools around the world. Available completely online, this program will help you transform businesses and propel them far into the 21st century. Data mining, data analytics, and data science are keys to your success, and we provide the key to unlock your future. Reach for the stars with a West Texas A&M Master's in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. For as long as I've been a professor, I've been committed to breaking the stereotype of the boring old professor who sits around reading all the time perhaps smoking a pipe and with bits of his breakfast on his tie. (laughs) Yeah, not that I wear a tie or anything, but uh, lofty ideas are great for the classroom, but once you leave the ivory towers of academe, it's time to let your hair down, if you have any. Um, Joanna, (laughs) I know of two great diversions you enjoy, one of which finds you on a very different kind of stage compared to the one we occupy in our classes. In recent months, you've been involved with Amarillo Little Theater. How did this come about, and were you a child actress or at university? Ooh. Um, Well, my relationship with Amarillo Little Theater actually started just after I graduated from law school. I moved to Amarillo, started working in a law firm, felt pretty lonely, a little isolated, and I, I needed an outlet. And I saw that Amarillo Little Theater was holding open auditions for Dracula. Went and tried out and was cast as the maid, Miss Wells. And the next couple years did a couple more productions with ALT. Uh, then took a, a rather long hiatus between switching careers to academia and then focusing on uh, my fiction writing for a while. It was just not a good time to, for me to be with ALT. I also frankly wanted to work on some of my skills. ALT has phenomenal talent. It's it's not a traditional community theater at all. It, I think it's easily one of the premier community theaters in the country. At 95 years, certainly one of the longest running. But I, I really wanted to improve my vocal skills. So I started taking private voice lessons. 
and that that helped considerably. I also started studying acting um, more formally. I raided the Cornet Library on the WT campus for acting books. I think I read most of an entire bookcase over the last few years trying to train myself. Um, so this this season has been me kind of reintroducing myself to ALT. As far as for where I got my start, um, it did start in childhood. Um, not, not as a child actor, though. That was one thing my parents actually wanted to avoid. But I had um, several physical challenges when I was a kid. Um, my legs did not form correctly. And I had a lot of respiratory problems and I had a slight speech impediment. So there was speech therapy, uh, which actually inspired me to enjoy reciting things. Uh, there were vocal lessons when I was younger that did help with some of the respiratory. And then pretty intensive physical therapy when I was very young for my legs that turned into formal dance training. So there were all these things that it, the original goal was just to make it so I could t speak normally and walk across a room. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, I fell in love with a lot of it. And so as an adult, it, it's turned into a more directed pursuit for this, the sheer joy of being up in front of an audience. Your most recent production was These Shining Lives, a period piece in one act. Tell us about the plot line and your role. The plot line is inspired by the story of the Radium Girls. This happened in uh, 1920s and 1930s in New Jersey and Illinois. There were factories where uh, young women were hired as unskilled labor, and their job was to paint glow-in-the-dark material onto the faces of clocks and watches. They would stick the brushes in between their lips to form a point before sticking it into the glow-in-the-dark powder. Well, the powder contained radium. And originally, everyone was told, oh, radium, it's the next great health sensation. It cures almost everything. But then the women who were using this material regularly started to have some pretty frightening symptoms. And the radium girl story is a story of these women deciding to go after the companies. And the two stories are a little different based on if you're looking at New Jersey or Illinois. In Illinois, the company actually just flat out went out of business. So there really wasn't much to sue. They had left a chunk of money kind of as an insurance policy with the Illinois Industrial Commission. And in the end, that was the only money the women could go after. But the play focuses on um, characters inspired by four of the real life women and what they went through with their friendships and deciding that they were going to say something to the, you know, to the world about what the company was doing. They didn't want to go away quietly. And it meant putting their own reputations and the emotional health of their families on the line. But they felt that it was necessary to say something. And it, 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 was, it was a landmark for Illinois law to suddenly say, no, companies have to be responsibility for, responsible for the safety of their workers. You can trace the roots of things like uh, OSHA to cases like this in American history. As the play progressed, it became apparent that it was all going to boil down to a big lawsuit, one that would be fought tooth and nail 
by the seemingly benevolent yet evil employer. This sounds right up your alley. I mean, <laughs> should I be surprised that you had a major, major role in this play? It, you know, my, my legal background did translate into me just having a desire to do a lot of research into what happened legally with the whole thing. But I, I was inspired to audition in part because I, well, I made a promise to my voice teacher, frankly, for this season, since I've been out for so long, he told me, you need to audition for everything. But I was particularly eager because I saw that this show was going to be directed by Carrie Huckabay, who is one of the greatest actors that we have in the Texas Panhandle, um, very well known around ALT. And this was going to be her first time directing an adult production on the ALT main stage. And the chance to be a part of that I thought would be amazing. And it was. I mean, Carrie, I see so many parallels between theater and business. And, you know, are there good examples of leaders and top managers? And Carrie was an amazing leader. She knew how to assemble a team. She knew how to lead the team, but she also recognized the strengths that each of us brought. She managed each of us differently based on our needs and abilities, but did it in, in such a calm way that everything just felt like it was moving seamlessly. It, it, it All around, it ended up being a phenomenal experience to be a part of the show. I noted you were also an Elf the Musical not not long ago, and that's a great, <laughs> fun romp for the holidays. I love that. Uh, what role did you portray an Elf? And uh, tell us some stories from that one. Um, so in Elf, I was Deb. She's the office administrative assistant. Um, completely different from these shining lives. I mean, Elf is, you know, a big spoonful of marshmallow fluff dropped on top of a mug of hot chocolate. It, it was just pure fun. Um, and before that, actually, Guys and Dolls, I got to be uh, General Cartwright, who was head of the, the mission group. Um, Deb was just sheer joy and exuberance. Uh, she just, she loves Christmas, no matter what. And that was a very fun role to get to play. Um, some of the stories... Uh, one of my favorites, uh, there was there's a moment where Deb tells Buddy the Elf that a paper shredder is a machine that makes snow. And he takes this very much to heart. So there, she says, you know, to cheer up his dad, Walter Hobbs, maybe we should make him some snow. She's just joking. But Buddy thinks, no, we really should. And so we had it play out on stage where Ben, who was playing Buddy the Elf, would run across the stage over to his dad at one point and shout snow and throw some shredded paper in his face. And we kept a bag of shredded paper off stage. And there was a particular moment where Ben was just supposed to reach into that bag, grab a handful, and then run across the stage. And I was supposed to follow on and have a little comedic moment with my entrance. I, I walk over and I go, oh, oh no, because I see that my boss is covered in shredded paper now. But there was one night there was no shredded paper off stage. And we had about 15 seconds to problem solve because it was a live sold out show. And Ben was looking at me and I and said, well, what am I even going to do? I said, I, I'm pretty sure there's shredded paper in the pretend paper shredder near the coffee machine. Just 
casually walk over there. I'll stall and vamp a little so you've got more time. Just grab a handful out of there and then run across the stage with it. Well, I was focused on my role. I didn't know that he'd grabbed two giant handfuls of shredded paper. And he ran over to Walter Hobbs, shouted snow, threw it. And the, the ensemble members standing behind them told me later, it was so much shredded paper. When it hit the actor, there was an audible thump noise. <laughs> but I did my bit. I heard the audience laughing. I got across stage and I'm supposed to look up and be startled. Oh no, my boss got hit by a shred of paper. That day I was not acting because he was covered head to toe. And I just, I broke up laughing on stage. It was, it was so over the top. Well, sometimes those spontaneous deviations are, make it even better for the audience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the actors I have enjoyed the most throughout my life were triple threats, those mm. who could act, sing, and dance, and do them all very well. I always loved watching the Dick Van Dyke show for that reason, because both Dick and Mary Tyler Moore were nothing short of amazing. Have you had any opportunities in which you could use your, uh, not just acting, but your voice training and dance all at the same time? I think so far, Deb and Elf uh, is probably the best example of that. Um, that was actually, in fact, in some ways, a, a very humbling experience. It's, it's been a few years since I was doing formal dance training, and oh, heavens, I've missed it. I'm even thinking of doing some adult tap dance classes just because I want to get back in. I want to be with other people who love to dance. But, uh, you know, I have enough muscle memory, and I work out enough privately on dance and choreography that I felt like I'd be okay going in. But then they put me downstage center for the finale as Deb. And I was I was absolutely terrified of just not living up to what I personally think is the ALT standard. So there, there was a lot of extra work. Um, at this point, I would not not consider myself to be a triple threat. Um, acting, I'm feeling pretty good. Voice, I'm feeling pretty good. But uh, Dance, uh, no, maybe I'm a two and a half threat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty good, though. <laughs> Far better than I could ever do. So anyway, I know from my own kids being involved in children's theater a number of years ago that the stage is all consuming. Um, I was a theater dad, you know, and we get drafted to do all kinds of things, too, mm -hmm. like build sets and so forth. And, and I know what my kids went through, uh, and they were very young at the time. It can demand many, 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 many hours long into the night, along with a production schedule that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for anything else. What are the challenges in juggling your academic career with the rigors of the theater? Well, doing performances with ALT, I, I'm very fortunate because I'm surrounded by so many amazing community volunteers and everyone faces that challenge, you know, re regardless of what our specific jobs are. And so we get to work with each other and learn best practices. There are, uh, there are a lot of school teachers who will bring homework that they need to grade or lesson plans. And you watch how other people do it, how they figure it out. Sometimes we'll carve out one little area in the theater where people are plugging in their laptops because when you're not on stage doing the scenes, you're off stage doing work. I mean, there, 
there was actually one audition this season. There was an article I knew I had to incorporate into a journal article I was about to submit somewhere. So I auditioned, sat down between the vocal and the dance, pulled out the article, and I was reading, highlighting, and doing notes sitting in a back row because that's when I had to do it. So it, it helps to know other people have the same challenge um, and to see what they do. But also, Amarillo Little Theater, the directors respect and understand that this is a theater of community volunteers. They are organized. When you get a rehearsal breakdown, it's usually down to 30-minute increments on when your scene will be rehearsing. The expectation is you get there 10 to 15 minutes before your scene call. But it's not like you show up and you're like, oh gosh, I only rehearsed for a half hour tonight and they had me here for two hours. That doesn't happen. It's organized. So you've got to be on top of your calendar. There's a lot of color coding in mine, but it is doable. If you're willing to stay on top of it, the, the theater works with you and all of your castmates are doing the same thing. Any upcoming performances we should be aware of or ambitions beyond Amarillo? Well, I am looking forward to seeing what ALT is going to put out for next season. They, they're currently voting on the options for all the plays and musicals. Um, as far as performing, I am done with ALT for this season. But upcoming performances, I will definitely be going to see the uh, everything left for Amarillo Little Theater. Um, there's uh, a show coming up, The Father, which is a fascinating uh, drama that will be on the adventure space. And I know most of the cast, I was really excited when I saw the cast list go up. And it's going to be very strong performances. And then um, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, which we are so fortunate that we got the regional performance rights. There just happened to be an opening between when one group had the contract and another regional theater, I think it's St. Louis that gets it next, had gets the rights. There was just this gap. And because of the reputation of ALT, we were offered a basically a one-month window to perform. And I actually snuck in and sat in on the uh, first night of auditions. And it was... Oh, it's just always amazing to see the talent. So I'm, I'm extremely excited about that show. It's going to be fun. It's going to be music a lot of people know. You may not even realize that you know some of the tunes. And it's going to be high energy and just music and excitement. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I said in my best marketer's voice, um, you are also an accomplished author, having written a number of thrillers. Your readers know you by your nom de plume, Marianne M. Wells. And I'm betting few people around WT even know that you do this as well. <laughs> what, what motivated you to become an author? Uh, that, that I've been writing since, oh gosh, third grade. I made my first attempt at a trilogy of historic novels when I was in fifth grade. Um, the world should be grateful uh, to know that I found those old manuscripts and destroyed them. I saved the planet, trust me. You don't want to read what a fifth grader thinks is a good historic novel. Um, but no, I've just always been a writer. I like exploring other, other people's minds and writing 
along with acting. Those are both outstanding ways to do that. And, and what's your favorite of the ones you've written? And I should add, they're all available on Amazon, so listeners, uh, get out your credit card. <laughs> um, the, the favorite for a lot of readers is New Mexico Fairy Tales. I did the best that I could to capture some of the magic that we think of when we think of the land of enchantment. At the same time, combining it with a little bit of real history, and then also my own very vivid imagination. It, it's a big favorite. Um, for me, though, I th my current favorite is the science fiction book, The Heart's Fire. I like the way it turned out. I, I played around a little bit. Each chapter focuses on the point of view of a different character. But the pacing is still really good. And I just, I love good classic sci-fi. And that's what this is. In the future, well, I've got a storyline inspired by, you know, Texas Panhandle history, particularly the Red River Indian War. Did a lot of research for that, traveling throughout Texas and Oklahoma, actually visiting forts and battle sites. And I need to edit it down <laughs> is the issue. But that may turn out to be one of my favorites, just because to me, it, it's, it ended up being very vivid, which is what I wanted. That's one of the reasons I went. I wanted to know the quality of light and the texture of air in these places and try to imagine what it felt like when this was a battlefield. And I think that comes through in the writing. But also, the Texas Panhandle to me is fascinating. We, we've served as a, a turning point in US American history. And most people outside of this state won't know that. But I find a lot of people in the Texas Panhandle don't fully understand it either. But the 1870s and 1880s in this part of the world were amazing. And that's something I, I'm hoping will come through when that book publishes. I've long heard it said, blessed is the person with a hobby, for they live in two worlds. <laughs> um, and, and I suppose hobby can easily be interchanged with activities. And in your case, uh, it sounds like you live in three, uh, which is very enviable. Do you have any advice for people mired in a one-dimensional life? I, I'm not convinced that there are that many people who are mired in a one-dimensional life. The older I get, the more I, I actually, because I used to wonder that. But the, the older I get, the more I question that. What I think happens is that, and, and I, I think about how our students probably look at us. Oh, this person is my professor. And they probably think that, that that is the sum total of our existence. And they may take from that, okay, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to get a job, and my job will be my identity. But I don't think that's true for a lot of people. I, th I think what we could be doing more is essentially what you're trying to do. You know, even in part of your intro to this, this section of the podcast today, to point out that that's really not the reality. Your, your job does not have to be, and for most people, is not the sole source of their identity. We're not one-dimensional. And the people around you probably have a much richer story than you are aware of. So you don't need to necessarily hide the other parts of yourself. And at the same time, maybe you can reach out and get to know more about the other people you're with as well. That's good. So you're, what you're saying is who you are informs your job, not the other way around. Absolutely. You know, and I can think of one example um, in my law and economics class, 
I have one economics point where I use the American bison as a jumping off point for a lot of law and economics conversations. And I learned so much about that animal because I was doing the research for the novel about the Red River Indian War. I mean, for me, if I learn something fascinating in one facet of my life, it's going to carry into the other areas. So, you know, what I do in my writing will benefit my lesson planning and my teaching. What I do on stage will benefit what I do in the classroom. I mean, what I, the lengths I go to to try to keep myself physically healthy so I can perform in a show, that also means I'm going to be physically healthy and ready to go for those 8 a.m. business law lectures. Knowing how to bring energy onto the stage means I'm going to bring my best energy and the best version of myself to my students in a face-to-face class. Our guest today has been Joanna Kimball, clinical assistant professor at West Texas A&M University, actor and author. Joanna, or, or should I say Marianne, I don't know, um, <laughs> give us your best shot. Whatever you do, do it to your best ability and take a few minutes when it's over to reflect and think about what you've learned about who you are. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our Director of Marketing and Outreach Initiatives, which includes overseeing BuffSpeak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is Director of Accreditation and is our Technical Consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.